0: This podcast may have explicit content and also has this implicit request. If you follow me on Twitter, why not follow The Gist at Slate Gist? It's Friday, November 16th, 2018. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Let me now read you some resumes, partial resumes, of the last four ambassadors to South Africa under Republican presidents. So I don't want to even include those touchy-feely humanitarians who Democrats might have appointed. Just want to talk about the kind of person who might get appointed by a gimlet-eyed realist in the Oval Office. So George W. Bush's last ambassador to South Africa, Eric Bost, before Bost got that job, he was responsible for 15 USDA nutrition assistance programs with a combined budget of over $58 billion. So worked in the government, lots of money. Before him was Dr. Jendai Frazier, who pretty good resume. Before going to South Africa, she was special assistant to the president and senior director for African affairs on the National Security Council. She was a Harvard professor. Before that, she was a professor of international studies at the University of Denver. She was the editor of the journal Africa Today. Seems qualified. Cameron Hume, before that, served for George W. Bush. He was the ambassador to Algeria before going to South Africa, wrote such books as the United Nations, Iran and Iraq, how peacemaking changed and ending Mozambique's war before he went to South Africa. Before him, and we're talking the George H.W. Bush administration, you got William Lacey Swing, who preceded his South Africa stint by being the ambassador to the Republic of the Congo and the ambassador to Liberia. All right. So there's a bunch of Republican appointees to South Africa. Let me tell you about the current Republican president's choice to be ambassador to South Africa. This is his just making the choice. He has, of course, been in office almost two years. This woman is a professional handbag designer. She is a member of Trump's Mar-a-Lago Club. She has no diplomatic or public policy experience. Who is she? It's Lana Marks. That is Lana Marx, or was Lana Marx speaking to us in the third Lana Marx from a video Lana Marx made introducing her iconic collection. And in doing so, she indicates a familiarity not only with South Africa, but a country in Northern Africa. I would like to introduce you to the Cleopatra Clutch collection, which was inspired by Elizabeth Taylor, for her role in Cleopatra. So in this one-and-a-half-minute video, I and mean, the video is longer, but she talks for about a minute and a half, she mentions that she is Lana Marks three times. So I went to her Twitter page, and uh, the first one there, as of this recording, via Women's Wear Daily, Lana Marks, the makings of a fashion-focused ambassador nominee, and then she says she's deeply honored to be nominee for the United States of America to South Africa. And then, in 11 of the next 13 tweets, she mentions that she is Lana Marx. She tweets about herself in the third Lana Marx. I think it's actually 12 of the next 14 times some of these tweets are. Lana Marx's performance at the 1978 French Open, mentioned in the May 23rd, 1980, Mid-Ocean News. And then there's, as a businesswoman, Lana Marx believes in the important role of women in the workplace. And then there's, just for the red carpet, the Lana Marx-Cleopatra clutch. So you get the idea. Lana Marks, a self-promoter, puts her name on a lot of things, not really qualified, also been reported, has been sued several times for not paying her bills. I can't see what Trump sees in her. Lana Marks is the fourth member of Trump's Mar-a-Lago club to be nominated to be an ambassador. Robin Bernstein is currently serving in the Dominican Republic. Brian Burns turned down the Ireland post and Patrick Park declined the honor of being ambassador to Austria, Trump picked him in part based on the fact that Parks saw the sound of music 75 times. As alive as the hills may be, the halls of the U.S. Capitol are not full of ambassador nominees. Trump waited a while to pick Lana Marks. I guess he was vetting her resume. In fact, her explanation as to why she got into the handbag game is that she couldn't find a bag to match the red jumpsuit that she was going to wear to a party thrown by Queen Elizabeth on the royal yacht. I know, who wears a red jumpsuit to meet the queen? But you know, the real scandal of this whole story is that jumpsuit, no, it's not the cronyism. It's not the cacistocracy, it's the inattention to detail. Like I said, it has been almost two years. South Africa's an important regional power, a G20 nation. It needs an ambassador. You know who else needs an ambassador? Egypt does, Jordan does, Libya does. I got one for you. And the nominee was put forward last week, but you ready? Saudi Arabia still doesn't have an ambassador, might, but still doesn't. Kind of comes up a lot in the news these days. You know who else doesn't have an ambassador? Turkey. Now, some of these countries had one when Trump started, or for a time, or the ambassador quit, but they're either totally vacant or with a a nominee pending, and it turns out as I look at the list of countries, they're often countries that Trump talks smack about, and there's no U.S. representative there to tell him he's wrong, like the caravan that started in Honduras. It's currently in Mexico. Honduras, no U.S. ambassador. Mexico, no U.S. ambassador. Do you remember that time it was talking about Sweden, the news in Sweden, the refugee attacks in Sweden? Maybe you should call the U.S. ambassador to Sweden. Oh, we don't have one. And of course, with South Africa, Trump echoed a horribly inaccurate idea spread by Tucker Carlson about land seizures and white farmers. I do not know what's worse, having this gaping hole in your knowledge that's filled by Fox or... Trying to get a person on the ground, but having that person be an unqualified crony whose credential is she belongs to your $200,000 a year club. Maybe it's just a microcosm of the ongoing question with the Trump presidency. Is it worse when he doesn't even try to govern or when he does? On the show today, I spiel about The news that comes before the news. The people who are going to be the news. Does that sound good to you? You're going to be the news? Yeah, I'll be the news. That sort of thing. But first, three years ago when two inmates at the Maximum Security State Correctional Facility in Dannemora, New York, escaped, it gripped the nation. Matt and Sweat were their names. They were assisted by a female guard who they were having sex with. She was sneaking supplies to them. It is the stuff of drama. And who better to dramatize it than ben stiller yes yes he does a great job directing the new showtime seven part series in a way that is gripping and thorough and i could use those words to describe the interview that's coming up with ben stiller if i wanted to sound like i was being generous with praise but really just being self-laudatory anyway ben stiller up next Escape at Dannemora is, well, it's about that, exactly. It's a seven-episode series on Showtime. The executive producer, the director of these episodes is Ben Stiller, who's been in some movies himself and has directed some great ones. This is, I think, his first foray into this Prestige cable story over a long period <laughs> of time, type of thing. Hello, Ben. Thanks for coming in. How are you? So I want to start off as all great interviews do with a question about a preposition. Why is it escape at and not from Danamora? <laughs>
1: <laughs> there was a lot of discussion that of went into. Of course, there is. Yeah. Yes, people would probably call it escape from Danamora. Yeah. And uh, at one point, we were just going to call it Danamora. Yeah. And we landed on Escape At, which was the original idea that Brett and Michael Tolkien had, the writers. I think, you know, we didn't want to do Escape From, like, because that would have been Escape From Alcatraz, maybe. We felt like it just was a little bit different, and also... Danamora is the town where the prison is. It's also how the prison is known sort of colloquially. Really. It's
0: the Clinton Correctional Facility. It's right, Clinton Facility.
1: Correctional, right. Yeah. So, you know, we felt like there's sort of a theme of escape happening. Everybody wants to get out of there. Joyce Mitchell, you know, who Patricia Arquette plays, who works there, wants to get out. I, I think the, uh, the character that uh, David Morse plays, Gene Palmer, he kind of wants to get out, too. You know, it's, it's, it's... So the idea was sort of everybody's escaping at Danamora. I don't... You know what? I have no actual logical answer for you as to why we just liked how it sounded.
0: Well, also, I think when you say at, the prison becomes more of a character.
1: Right. Yeah. And, and it's prism- really
0: about a yeah. micro uh, a microcosm. The prison it serves as a microcosm, and it's an analysis of the system and everything that the prison represents. And so you're really doing a story about a place or, or a structure.
1: Definitely. The environment was a, a huge part of the story, and it was really important to be able to shoot up there and to be able to have that be authentic, because I, I feel like that sort of contributed to the escape in a big way. The fact that this place has been there for so long, it's kind of antiquated, it's um, set in its ways. And when the inspector general of New York State, who did this report that we kind of based uh, a lot of uh, our story on, came out with this report, she, you know, she, she said that, that this culture of complacency that uh, was there was, you know, due to the fact that you know, people have been doing things the same way there for a long, long time. It's been there for over 130 years, I think.
0: Yeah. And I thought another really interesting part of it was that you have— we're Every movie, every uh, TV show about a prison escape, although I never watched Prison Break, and if you have, you correct me, but it really centers on the prisoners and why they want to get out. And the guards are usually the antagonists. But in this case, because of the facts of it, where there was assistance from this guard, Tilly, you had to walk the line between how to treat her exactly. You could have gone the way that she was a victim I mean, that. I think that would have been very, very compelling, or it would have been very attractive for a lot of movie makers to make the point, you know, she was as much a victim as they were. But you know what? The facts don't show that. And she did <laughs> wrong, and I came away thinking that I understood her motivations, but also I gave her a lot of the blame.
1: Yeah, she, well, I mean, she was definitely breaking the rules. I think she's a complicated character. It's hard to tell exactly. If she's good or bad, I don't know if she's. I don't want to call her good or bad. Yeah, no, I I, don't, I wasn't being. thinking of it as yeah, good or but bad, she definitely but I'm like
0: culpable. She was and,
1: manipulative, mm-hmm. um, and yeah. I, and this is you know the information that I I'm getting from the people I, I talked to who were in that tailor shop with her, and that's the only information I have. But uh, what you know what they've told me, and that you know the, the feeling that, that I get is that she was uh, she enjoyed. Sort of the power that she had in that room, you know, she wasn't a uh, corrections officer. She's a, a civilian supervisor yes. uh, in the tailor shop that she was responsible for, you know, manufacturing uh, uniforms and shirts and uh, uh, for other prisons. And uh, it's a corporation for profit, so she's in there having to get in, uh, you know, make a quota and have these forty inmates who are all in there for violent crimes work for her. And she's in that room with one corrections officer, and that's it. And it's a pretty, uh, you know, it's, uh, it could be a very dangerous environment. And she uh, took advantage of that dynamic and i think she sort of fed off of it
0: i think also this series shows more bad sex that is not rape and not violent than any other <laughs> not, and not comic than any other thing i've seen it's just like really bad sex
1: That's <laughs> what i'm expert at yeah bad sex i um i, I loved in that
0: ongoing hbo series yeah
1: <laughs> um I, you know, I, n- I never judged the sex. I, I think, um, you know, the sex is going on in, in a, it's in this, you know, Taylor Nine. They call it. It was the back room of the Taylor shop. It, it, it we. I went to the real place. It's uh, a back room in this warehouse-like environment. These guys are working in, and then, and they had a short amount of time to to get what they needed to get done. Done. You know, I, I mean, these people are fulfilling needs human needs that that everyone has and i think the fact that you're you're in prison Uh, makes it, uh, you know, those obstacles are there, but people are going to find a way. And so we tried to show that, I guess.
0: So was your source material an inspector general's report and not a a dramatized version thereof?
1: Yeah, no. uh, Yeah, that was uh, basically uh, Brett Johnson and and Michael Tolkien had written sort of a, a conjecture version of what had happened right after the escape happened. And it didn't have all of the facts. And then not until... The Inspector General report came out that was when I came on board after seeing that because I thought, oh, if we actually went off of this, the reality, now that we have all this information, this will be much more interesting.
0: That is really interesting because there are, of course, a lot of nonfiction works that draw upon sources, but I don't think anyone's ever made a movie just about the The Star Report, or just about (laughs) a government report. Yeah, I mean, you
1: know, that's they say
0: blue collar commission, (laughs) but I don't think it's great for drama.
1: Yeah, it's actually a very well written report. I recommend it. It's they I clicked on it in the New York Times the day it came out, which was I think about a year uh, to the day after the escape happened, and it's just a page turner, and it's got great pictures in it too. (laughs) And um, and and looking at it, I was like, this is almost like a novel. Let's you know, like, oh my god, that happened. They did that. She did that. Um, You know, she stuck the hacksaw blades in the hamburger meat. And how did that happen? And that was, to us, that was a jumping off point. And then it became, okay... The first phase of making it was like, get the facts, get the facts, and only the facts. And then it became, okay, how do we now dramatize this and make it something you actually want to watch and see the
0: next episode? So we've touched on the character of Tilly, who was the, not the guard, the civilian employee on the inside, played by Patricia Arquette. Here's my, you're an actor, you know, but it strikes me that Patricia Arquette can play dumb people and smart people so well. And it's kind of rare. Not only does she have range, but when she inhabits this character, it's totally believable. And yeah. you need that.
1: Yeah. shes I mean, she's amazing. And she really is smart and very, you know, she's a very um, uh, forthright person. And um, she's very, you know, an empowered uh, woman. And she cares about... Uh, issues that that involve women and equality, and I, you know, and for everyone really. And she's really, really smart. And I don't think she ever looked down at this character. I think she saw Tilly as as a woman who was being in a, being manipulated by these guys, but also was a manipulative person. But also a woman in a you know in a male society. And you know, I think it's impossible not to look at that when you see this in terms of like how sex for her was sort of a you know a currency and something that she used to to get uh, approval and to to you know really uh, to manipulate people for her, or just for her own ego, I think. And when she was in that tailor shop, she was sort of like on display and, you know, she's a 51-year-old grandmother, but she's the only woman that uh, these inmates are around and she would flirt with them and she would, uh, t- you know, she would, she liked that.
0: And the brilliance, uh, I suppose, and you could tell me if this was an appeal, if not the appeal of doing this in this seven-part series, is that, yes, you can get into a lot more realistic detail of how the breakout happened, just in terms of literally sometimes nuts and bolts and sledge but you could get so much more into the character that she was and her role in this. Because if this is the hour and a half escape from Alcatraz type movie, it could be a great movie. We could, you know, I'm sure that your your main actors will blow us away with their menace and their guile and so forth. But I think her character is the one that becomes more of a caricature.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that was what was interesting to me was the how something like this really happens. Besides the nuts and bolts of it, how do these Prisoners get to a point where they have access to uh, people in the prison who are going to help them in in a very sort of low-fi, low-tech sort of way. Because when you walk into that prison, it could be you know sixty or seventy years ago. There's you know you don't you can't bring your phone in. There's you know the people are passing notes to each other. That's how you know it's all like looks and little moments and um, trading things. And it's you know so how does that happen today where people take advantage of somebody else to be able to get what they want? And develop a relationship, and that that involved them seducing her and her thinking she was taking advantage you know, of using them, but really they were using her and uh, that to show that develop over the course of time because the the actual breakout time was about probably about six months, but they had had a relationship with her over the course of a, a couple of years before that, and um, that was something when we showed the inspector general uh, and her team the the show they I, I was happy that they said we they felt we really got that right which was how um someone is groomed to be used and and over that over the course of time and uh it, it starts with just these little interactions and then they cross the line because like Gene Palmer the the guard uh that David Morse plays was bringing the meat that uh Tilly had put the hacksaw blades in to to Richard Matt in his cell he was sort of the go between but he had no idea at least he claims he had no idea that there were actual hacksaw blades. So he was breaking the law by bringing him the meat, but it was just a favor, you know. Because they bring like venison, or if the guys go, the corrections officers go hunting, they had extra, you know, meat. They would give it sometimes to the prisoners. And so he just thought he was just doing that because he had his own relationship with Richard Matt. Um, but uh, he he didn 't know that he was actually you know helping them escape, so like little you know those little infractions led obviously to the escape that uh, and that that was just sort of the dynamic of how people interact in this ecosystem, which was interesting
0: do you think that viewers are going to instinctively root for prisoners to escape, and how did you incorporate that into a what you were showing over seven episodes.
1: Yeah, I, I think for sure. I mean, they're, you know, the the two movie stars who were, <laughs> you know... Paul gonna, Dano, Benicio yeah, Del Toro. Yeah, Turns so, out they're charismatic. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that was, um, you know, Richard Matt was very charismatic. He, you know, if you, you see uh, footage of him, he was... He was handsome, he was tall, he was um he was a manipulator and and people uh he was charming to to people in prison.
0: Yeah. And he uh, just seemed so alpha. Like you've probably yes. seen that blowgun video that was I out. Have. It's just it, it doesn't seem compelling to me, but you could see in his milieu why yeah. someone would defer to him yeah. as this guy with tons of energy and ideas. Yeah. Yeah,
1: and he was also a a a, a painter yeah. and he I think he kind of idolized uh, Tony Soprano. He did paintings of him. He wanted to be like that David Sweat who we got a chance to spend a little time with said that that he, that he was kind of like that kind of guy, like a like you uh, like a wanna-be gangster sort of guy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so they both of these guys are were in prison because they committed murder and you know you're seeing them as the guys who want to escape and you can look at that place and go, okay, I understand why they'd want to get out and you you can't help, but root for them. We tried not to make it that, um, that was, you know, to, to try to make them likable in that way, except the fact is you want to be able to watch these characters do this thing. I, I feel in the storytelling, we found a way to address that. And, uh, it's It's um, something that I I don't like to talk about too much because I want people to see the show and see how it plays out. But uh, I felt like we did have a responsibility to um, let people understand why these guys were in jail, which was for yeah. committing both very violent crimes.
0: And you can't get away from the fact that they really are guilty of the crimes that put them in jail. So it wasn't like a Shawshank no. situation. It wasn't like a Green Mile. It wasn't like, and that's fine, that's fiction, but it's kind of nice if you could root for the guy who's there um when, when he shouldn't be
1: yeah I mean in Shawshank he's like the wrongly accused guy right yeah. I yeah. mean uh, and he's got the scam and he's gonna make it all you know this is not that but they did liken themselves they even said at one point like we're like this is like Shawshank when they were down there at the outer wall he said would it take him like 20 years it's only gonna take us 10 yeah uh, and like
0: what it, do you expect them to do turn to each other and say it's a little on the nose sweat yeah Come
1: on.
0: <laughs> <laughs> we actually had that in the script
1: because they said that to each other yeah. and we thought oh that's so funny and that's so interesting Let's put it in and then we filmed it and when we filmed it we looked at it and said you know this is just too on the nose it's oh. too it feels too weird That's it feels funny. too meta and yeah. Um, so so we ended up changing it.
0: But I find, as far as on the nose go, in real life, so much stuff is on the nose. I mean, I remember right. one time I was in a situation where everyone in a crowd was shocked, and I had this consciousness. Oh, look to the left and right, and the expressions that people were giving the open gate, the gape mouthed expressions were just so cliche. We'd consider that bad <laughs> acting. It happens all the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah
1: it's with, with human reaction to things and right, people. So human, yeah, human desire. Like these guys are going to want to escape. You know, that's 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 probably obvious and you know they had to yeah they, that's just the way these things happen I um, and they had some crazy ideas actually that to, to escape before they actually hit on the way they actually escaped they had uh, at one point Richard Matt had this idea to this is crazy to make a hang glider out of Empty lip balm containers, uh-huh. like to make a frame for a hand glider yeah. and get it on the roof of the uh, tailor shop and jump over the wall.
0: I think that's a Simpsons episode.
1: Actually, I know. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I think Troy McClure did that. <laughs>
1: um, you know, oh my God. he never went through with that. Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but uh, you know, it's like you know, there is something to me. That's what was interesting about the story: the the cliches of it as they related to the reality of it, because you know, how does something like this actually really happen? And besides the fact that it's kind of hard to believe that something like this could happen in this day and age.
0: Yeah. You? Ben Stiller is the director of this seven-part series on Showtime called Escape at Danamora. We have found out in this interview, I think it's the first piece of prestige TV ever to be based on an inspector general's report. I hope this, I hope you get a hold of the Mueller commission report (laughs) and spin it into some gold, Ben.
1: That'll be like a 30 part series. Yeah. Thank you, Ben. All right. Cool.
0: And now the spiel. Are you like me? The news, it's trying, it's all consuming. What was once a journey is now a slog. It's a slogny, a slog journey. And while the news has changed, the quality, the information in the news has changed over the last two years since Donald Trump was elected, the way we consume the news has changed as well. Like podcasts. And to my ears, the single greatest change within this slogney of news goes back to the old adage, the longest journey, or slogney, begins with a single step. It is the way we step into the news. It used to be, and now the news. Here's Trevor Maxton Bramble with today's top story. And then he would get into the news. Today's top story is a crossbow in Wessex, blah, blah, blah. But These days, we ease into the news. And and what we'd like to do is we establish the humanity of the news purveyors. No one does this more than the podcast The Daily. Here's Michael Barbaro on hold with a congressional reporter. Senate Press. Hey, I'm trying to reach Jennifer Steinhauer. Okay, hold on one second. She's waiting for you. Here's Michael Barbaro on hold with a member of Congress. I'm trying to reach Megan Rogers.
1: Yes, she's actually
0: conducting an interview with the congressman. Um, oh, no, I'm, I'm the uh, I'm the interview. Oh, okay. But sometimes Michael Barbaro is not the interview. Sometimes he's interviewing Maggie Haberman. Uh, do we have Tallahassee? Sorry, yeah. C- can you guys hear me now?
1: Oh, it's Jeremy. Hi. Hey, Jeremy. Oh, my
0: God. Sometimes it's Matt Apuzzo we get to learn a little bit about before we get to the real substance of the interview.
1: Matt, yes. thank you yes. for yes, coming on. I'm going to say hello. Oh, 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 sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Get in the gate. Okay, Matt. Thank you for coming on.
0: Great to be back, Michael. And every once in a while, this is the ne plus ultra of preamble scene setting. Sometimes you get Matt Apuzo and Maggie Haberman. New York Times, Matt Apuzo. Hey, Apuzo, it's Barbaro. Hey, how's it going? Good, good, good. I'm here with Maggie Haberman. Uh, Maggie Haberman. Who?
1: <laughs> Who? Maggie's How are you, Maggie? Maggie's joining How are us you? in the
0: studio. I'm here. Um, we're going to jump in, guys. Thank you for coming on really short notice. Thank you. And it's not just The Daily. I believe they were the progenitors. They have, in fact, birthed a staple, what's become a staple in news reporting. Today Explained does it. Hello? Bree. Gotcha. We did it. And that plucky upstart, Slate's What Next, has been known to do it. Hello? Hey, Jim. How do I sound? And even today, I was listening to NPR, which I think was dragged into the curtain raiser bef- against its will. But they had this moment with Steny Hoyer. <coughs> now, I want you to know, what I'm playing to you is the version that NPR put on its website after doing some editing. This is true. I was listening la- live at 7 a.m. And this is how Steny sounded. Uh, should we assume you will have a working Thanksgiving? Well, Steve, I... <laughs> I, uh- I just woke up. And then Steve Inskeep actually says, well, if you want to clear your throat, by all means. Uh, it's just that all stennies get a little phlegmy from time to... Okay, I may be exaggerating, but not by much. It was the human moment of connection and disgust that we've all come to love and an opportunity for pulmonology students to diagnose from afar. But I say, why, up until this point, have these moments only been a small fraction of the podcast how about an entire podcast of just the chit chat that sets up the interview and the interview doesn't even have to come does it it's like crunch berries they used to be included in your captain crunch now you could buy the crunch berries alone i i can only imagine a podcast that might go like this hello i'm calling for timmy haggerty Oh, this is Tim Haggerty. Yes, this is Mike Pesco of The Gist, and we're trying to reach Timmy Haggerty to talk about the issue of 3D nanoscale maps of bacteria's chemical composition. Well, I'm Tim Haggerty. I I don't really understand what you're saying. Well, according to my notes, there is a Timmy Haggerty residing at this address who will one day be an expert in this. I have a a nine-year-old son named Timmy. Oh, very good. Is he good at science? He is. Could you put him on the phone? Hi, this is Timmy. Timmy. Have you ever thought of being a scientist? Yes, that's what I want to be when I grow up. Well, we want to do an interview with you about the 3D nanoscale map of bacteria's chemical composition. Okay. And I was wondering, would you mind getting good grades in high school to get into a good college? All right. And majoring in biology? I could do that. And doing graduate work in a lab? Sure, that sounds good. And then coming on my podcast to talk about 3D nanoscale maps? of a bacteria's chemical composition once you've gotten the appropriate credentials and knowledge. That sounds swell, mister. Might take me 22 years, but can we talk then? That's great, Timmy. Just hold the line. Okay, maybe that idea is a long shot. But if you think Citizen Kane was a great movie, what you're really saying is that you like this long, elaborate setup for the one relevant piece of information, which was Rosebud in the case of Citizen Kane. You watch The Sopranos, not for Don't Stop Believing," but for all the stuff that came before. What is art other than the setup that gets us to the credits? I say, ponder this, as we are joined now by former Deputy Secretary of State during the Clinton administration, Strobe Talbot. Thanks for joining us, Mr. Talbot.
1: Glad to be with you, Mark.
0: And that's it for today's show The Gist was produced by Pierre bien and Daniel Schrader. Wait, Pierre. P- Pierre, are you there? Daniel? Daniel, are you... Pierre? Pierre, can you hear Daniel? Daniel, can you guys... Are you okay? Okay? Ver- no? All right, then. I guess I got to go to TJ Raphael. She's senior producer of Slate Podcasts. She once worked a catering job at the Woodbriar Country Club and has a faux leather handbag from H&M. She's hoping for the Belize Post, but will hold out for Costa Rica. The Gist. Think of us as the blue steel for your ears or the magnum for your soul. Oomperoo peru.